archives. It's January 27th. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, part 10 today. Uh, next week, I think we wrap it up, and then we have chapter 16. And guess what? After that, we are going to the book of Galatians. That's going to be exciting, because finally we're going to get into the epistles of doctrinal subjects. And, uh, and there's been a lot in this, too, but uh, anyway, exciting. So if you haven't been with us before, we begin with a word of prayer. We sing a song or listen to a song uh, of scripture set to music and come after sitting in silence, we'll come back. We're going to pick it up at verse 51. We'll start with verse 50. Some good stuff today. This chapter is just a radical, amazing chapter. So uh, let's get into it. Father God, uh, in Jesus' name, your only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior and King, uh, who you love so much, you gave him to us to save us and redeem us and bring us um, forgiveness of sin and life, the end of death. And so we uh, rejoice in his name and we're grateful that, uh, that uh, we could gather together and consider things from scripture. We pray your spirit will guide us and be with us and um, forgive uh, uh, incorrect assumptions and teachings that I will make or that uh, we cling to, we want to know you in spirit and truth, because that's life eternal. We want life eternal. We want to exit this world and into your kingdom uh, without any distance between us. We want to be in complete and full and total fellowship with you, God, both here and there. And so uh, while here it's difficult because of our flesh, there it is possible. And so we learn and grow in faith and in our love as a means to uh, know you better. So help us with that, uh, that attempt today and then send us out to be better Christians and to just do what you have for us in our life uh, according to your spirit. And we just pray for these things and pray for anyone who's on the road, wants to be here or can't or whatever is going on, Lord, we just pray you'll be with us. And in Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, we left off at verse 50. Paul has been giving us all sorts of instruction on the resurrection of the dead. And he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. He has been emphatic on that point. And at this point, he goes on to describe the realities of the general resurrection, which I believe have been ongoing ever since the destruction of Jerusalem. And he has been describing all of that in terms of what it looks like. And now he is going to speak directly to another situation relative to the resurrection. What about people who are alive? 
What happens with them? We've talked about the resurrection of the dead. And so now let's read where he picks it up at verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at that last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immorality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immorality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That wraps it up. I think it helps us to start with verse 50, then go to 51. So he says, as we finished up last week's overall look at resurrection, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. It's kind of a final statement on the overall resurrection of the dead. Understand, right? And we covered that fairly deeply, but he says, behold, or like, now look, I am going to show you, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. When Paul says, behold, that means look, I'm going to show you a mystery. He's saying, I'm going to explain something to you that has not been known before. This is a mystery. You guys are alive there in Corinth. We've been talking about the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to show you a mystery now. All right? Something that hasn't been known. He has been describing the resurrection of the dead. The whole chapter's been aimed at getting to the root of that. But the bride was also being told by the apostles that Jesus was coming back to get them, to save them from the pending doom that Jesus had described in Matthew 24 on the Olivet Discourse. And the mystery Paul is going to explain to them is what's going to happen to people who are alive when he comes back, who have not died prior to his coming. So he says, behold, I show you a mystery. Notice the word we, I'm going to emphasize that a few times today. We, this was a letter to the believers at Corinth, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Somehow there has to be a solution to the fact that when Jesus comes, Paul is saying, or returns, that some of them, or some of us, if you want to read it as applying to you, will not have died. How will we, if you think he's still coming, experience obtaining this promised heavenly body if we're alive and we're not buried in the grave. 
because they were expecting his return to them while they were still alive, it's a reasonable mystery that needed some sort of explanation. And Paul gives it to it, gives them, gives it to them right here and there. So first he admits we're not all going to sleep. And there's debate on that with uh, Ellen G. White or Mary Baker Eddy, I can't remember which one, soul sleep and, and all of that. But it's a Hebrew colloquialism, which simply means we're not all going to die. That's what he says to the people there. We shall not all die. Okay? So he's been teaching on what the resurrection of the dead is, but what about the resurrection of the living that will happen when Jesus comes. And they were concerned about that. It's going to come up in different parts of Scripture. So why when he comes? Well, why are they worried about what will happen to them when he comes? Because when he comes, the resurrection is initiated. That's what we learned in the first part of this chapter. And it will be launched. Those who had died will be raised from the dead at that point in time. That's why people believe it's happening in the future. They can't believe that it's already started. Okay? So, since he was going to come or return to a world thriving with living people, there's people who believe he's coming in our future now. They, they, they see him coming, and they know from Scripture that when he comes, that's going to launch the resurrection of the dead. What's it going to mean to all the living people on the earth? The way I see it, Paul was telling them, when he comes for us, we will not all be dead. And so what's that going to mean to you and, and me if I'm alive in terms of resurrection? So he says at the beginning, we're not going to all die. Note that use of the term we by Paul. To me, this suggests that he thought it was possible he might be alive too. He could have said ye or you will not all die. And that would have let us know he doesn't think he's going to be around for this. But when he says we, he's including himself in that. And that intrigues me. Anyway, we shall not all die. We shall not all sleep. But we will all be changed. Now, in other words, if you're alive when he comes and have not died beforehand, we will all experience a shift from the corruptible to the incorruptible, which is what he's described in verse 50 going backward. We will all go from flesh and blood bodies, which are corruptible, to incorruptible heavenly bodies that he's been describing. Note that this was a letter to the believers at Corinth. He tells them, we shall not all die. They read this epistle when they got it, then and there. They trusted Paul and his words to them as their apostle. And imagine if they read this epistle and they read it with great hope and then a whole generation passed and it didn't happen. And what would the next generation of Christians at Corinth, if they were there, have thought of Paul's words when they read it? Uh, what about the third generation? I, uh, I could hear the great grandkids of the initial saints at, at Corinth saying, Grandpa, Grandma. Paul says that, Paul wrote you guys a letter and it said, you should not all die. And, uh, and yet everyone has died and my, your great grandparents have died and, and he was wrong. They did all die. 
He was wrong when he said that, right? Context allows us to see the reality of his words, folks. What he wrote to them then meant it. That's what he wrote to them. It was just a letter. I don't think Paul knew it would be brought into the body of Scripture. It was a letter. Uh, We shall not all die, but we will all be changed. How? What will that change look like at the arrival of his coming? Verse 52. We will all be changed, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall rise incorruptible, which he's been talking about for the whole chapter, and we shall be changed. The dead will rise incorruptible. We shall be changed. So that Greek word translated in the twinkling of an eye is uh, uh, atomos. And what that means, we get the word atom from that. And it means an indivisible portion in this, uh, in this instance of time. A microsecond, the fastest moment in time, we will all be changed. It can't be divided. It is such a small moment of time, Adamas. So, boom, there it is. I mean, it's even faster than that. So, first we notice there's a change. We notice that it's immediate. It's full and complete in the twinkling of an Adamas. And there's no body rising out of a grave there. And so the change living people would experience in receiving their heavenly body would happen instantly by the power of God who could cause this to occur in an atomus. And their fleshly earthly body will in a microsecond be changed to a heavenly body. Okay. This is an exception to the term resurrection. This is not a resurrection of the dead as he's been talking about. Now you might call it a resurrected body if you want to be kind of loose with it. You can call it a changed body, but it isn't the exact definition of the resurrection of the dead because Paul says we shall not all die. So we have two kind of categories to deal with when we're talking about what bodies we get when we go to heaven. One will be, if you've died, what you'll get and how that process looks. And he's gone to great length to explain that. And the next one is, the people who are alive are going to ha- have all of that happen just like that. It's just going to happen just like that, okay? And I think the end result is the same. I don't think there's two different types of bodies. I think the end result is the same, however you experience it. So that's one thing. Those who were alive at his coming would change in in, in indivisible point of time by the hand of God. We wonder about creation. I can't help but wonder that when I look at this. Uh, When it talks about the creation and the earth and all that in them is, heavens and the earth. And postulations are out there. It took him six 24-hour days. Literally talking about six 24-hour days. Okay, that the creation talks about. There's a whole museum out there that's about this. And then there are people who say, no, those are representational. Days could be a thousand or 10,000 years, six 10,000 year periods, right? Uh, I think that when God said it, it was as hard as that for our minds to imagine it. 
in an indivisible span of time. Could it have been 10,000 years? Could it have been six 24-hour periods? Sure, it could have been. We don't, you know, there's all the arguments against it. But I think it happened. He said it and it happened. If all who were alive will be changed from their earthly bodies of corrupt flesh, bone, and blood to an, in an indivisible span of time, everything that is could have been done in the same way. So I can't fathom it, but I ascribe to God the ability to do that. And so we don't need to get hung up on these fights about creation and can he do it. To help support this, though, I just want to shift my eschatological view for a second for you and just pretend I'm a futurist and I believe Jesus is coming in the future after all these years to fulfill everything he described in Matthew 24. Let's just say that's the case. And um, we're talking about, let's say, a billion people on earth today who are waiting for this and they're alive because apparently there's a billion Christians. All right, and let's say they will be changed at his coming, just for argument's sake. Well, to do this for a couple thousand people in, at Corinth's day, or to do it for a billion people in the future for our day, is the same to God. The, the mass isn't, isn't really that important, whether it's this much or this much. If God could speak an atom into existence, and the atom was, he can speak the whole picture into existence, and the whole picture can be. So that is no problem if you think about it that way. And if he can change a billion people in the twinkling of an eye, just like he could change a thousand people, then we don't need to argue on time spans when it comes to creation. So as I'm talking about that, just as a side note too, God is way, this this doesn't even satisfy the, the point. He is so far beyond our comprehension. We cannot get our hands around God and know him perfectly, fully. Scripture tells us that. We tend to humanize him, box him up, beard, gray hair, whatever things we do. But we're talking about the supreme power of everything. So when we try to do that stuff, he balances the micro and the macro and full knowledge and wisdom, ways, understanding, outside time and space. When he speaks and it's done from the self-existent one that we can't comprehend who loves his creations, I just think it's wise for us to approach the Christian life perhaps with a little bit more humility a little bit more contrition, a little bit, no, I don't know that we can say this is what it is. We have some guidelines. We know he loved us. He gave us a son. We can describe Jesus and his life, the atonement, those things. But anyway, Paul says, we shall not all die to them at Corinth, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. He says, at the last trump. And some people are hoping we're at the last trump now. <laughs> uh, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The phrase at that last trump is uh, Hebrew, Jewish. It is used all through their history. 
It was used in warfare, Trump signals to, to let people know what's going on. They didn't have radio communications, obviously. Since we're on the topic, there's this guy, his name's Rabbi Akiva, or Rabbi Ben Joseph Akiba. Uh, he lived from 50 AD to 136 AD, I think, 135 AD in Caesarea. And he was a great contributor to the Jewish body of works called the Mishnah. The, the Jews believed, if they weren't Sadducees, in a, in a resurrection. And this is what Rabbi Akiba wrote way back then. Uh, you know, 20 years after Jesus died, he was born. How shall the holy, blessed God raise the dead? This is a quote. We are taught that God has a trumpet a thousand L's long. You know, typical of the, of the Jews to give us some hyperbolic thing. This is a thousand mile long trumpet. According to the L of God, this trumpet he shall blow so that the sound of it extends from one extremity of earth to the other. At the first blast, the earth shall be shaken. At the second, the dust shall be separated. At the third, the bones shall be gathered together. At the fourth, the members shall wax warm. At the fifth, the head shall be covered with skin. At the sixth, the souls shall be rejoined to their bodies. At the seventh, all shall revive and stand clothed, end quote. So, you know, this Trump business, Paul knew. And the writer of Revelation, John, he knew Trump and trumpets blowing are the signal for things to happen in Jewish history, in their actual material history. So this was very much part of the teaching. I point this out in reference to uh, the Trump and not to other stuff to show how blowing trumpets was key in Hebraic thought. And this action of the last trump is found throughout Scripture. Jesus said, he's sitting with uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew on the Olivet Discourse, and he says in verse 31, and he shall send, talking about Yahweh, God, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. That's the, the coming resurrection. That's the coming return. That's the launching of Jesus' uh, triumphal return to the earth. He will, with a great sound of a trumpet, send his angels, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's how Jesus described his coming and the resurrection that would happen in accordance with it. So to the church at Thessalonica, Paul was describing the coming resurrection to them. They were concerned about what was going to happen if they were around when it, when it hit. He says something very similar there that he does here in 1 Corinthians. In uh, Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive, notice the use of his word we, in his epistle to them, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep, meaning in the resurrection. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This is the order he's giving them at Thessal Thessalonica. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another. 
with these words, you believers at Thessalonica. Comfort each other with how I've just described it. Those who have died before you, your children, your husbands, wives, they're going to rise first. Then we are going to go and be taken up and in the twinkling of an eye changed. That will all occur when he returns to take us. And if you're here, you can expect that. Comfort each other with these words. So Paul affirms some of the substance of the tradition of the sounding trump in those passages. That there shall be a sounded trump at that great day. And all who are alive will immediately change from incorruptibility to corrupt uh, from corruptibility to incorruptibility and Paul reiterates at first 53 of first Corinthians back to our chapter for this incorruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality a concept he's repeated several times then at verse 54 a so when then passage this is a so when then passage you ready so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, okay, he's just told them, when this corruptible shall have put on the incorruption, whether in the twinkling of an eye or being raised from the dead, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, right? Then, here's the when then. So when we change, then we shall be brought, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Ready? Death is swallowed up in victory. When then? When, we, when this occurs, then we come to pass that the saying death is swallowed up in victory has occurred. Okay. And we are, we are presented, and you guys know this, with a choice. You can believe it happened then according to everything that the apostles and Jesus said, and then you have to do something. You have to decide, well, how has death been swallowed up in victory? Or you can say, he couldn't have come as Jesus said he would and as the apostles did, and they were wrong, because death has obviously not been swallowed up in victory. And you are forced to decide how you're going to view all of the facts as a whole here. Okay? So at the resurrection of the dead, at least we know, and there's an immediate changing of the living and there's an, a changing of the dead first. And Paul says, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Okay. So, I'm just going to give you a pregnant pause here. Do you believe death has been swallowed up in victory? By Christ and his finished work. If you believe that... You have to explain that because we know people are dying every day. If you don't believe it, then you have to explain why Jesus said, I'm going to come within a generation. And the apostles all said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming quicker, quicker, quicker. He's upon us. It's here. You have, either way, you're going to have a choice to make on how to explain those things. That line, death is swallowed up in victory, was used all the way back in Isaiah 25. So listen to what Isaiah says, talking about his people then, plus giving a prophetic utterance. Plus, he says, 
And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto a people a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things on the marrow, of wine on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil shall be spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God shall wipe away tears off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall be taken away off the face of the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah spoke those words relative to the nation of Israel in that day. So they would use the phrase, he will wipe the tears from all eyes, applying to them in that day. It's a figure of speech. But someone could say, no, that's purely prophetic, speaking of this final day when death will be swallowed up in victory. Let's go with that too. The Septuagint reads, death has prevailed, having prevailed, is conquered, swallowed up forever. So death is personified here by the Jews. It's something they would do, and it represents this devouring creature and swallowing up generation after generation of human beings. And by the resurrection of the body and the destruction of the empire of death, God is represented as swallowing up that creature, as having victory and gulping it down so that death is endlessly lost and has no power anymore. Death is a metonym for everything that contains a loss of something that was once living that has now died or is decaying and suffering, infection, something that was once alive going away, okay? So I believe, and I could be wrong, but the stance I take, and I am really convinced of it, that if Jesus has had the victory over death, then it's all death in the spirit realm alone. Uh, he, death does not reign. Death cannot win. Death will not win. Death has lost. Okay? And he has had victory over it as the second Adam introduced it. I mean, as the second Adam, the first Adam introduced it. So now listen. He overcame death physically, but also by his life, he in overcoming the law, he overcame it spiritually. Okay, let me explain this. It gets a little heavy, but I think you'll get it. We've noted in the past where there is no law, if this is the law, where there is no law, there is no sin. Hang with me. This is a very biblical tenet here that is taught by Paul all throughout the New Testament. Where there is no law, there is no sin. I put up a law, you got to obey it. I take no law present, there's nothing to obey, there's no sin. Okay? So, no law, no sin, no sin, no death. That's how it works. The law was nailed to his cross. He overcame the law. No law, no sin, no sin, no death. So it appears that all angles that could potentially render death have been overcome by him. And that's good news. So we say, well, how are we still dying? 
How do I still have a toothache? How am I getting older and my body aches and how are we experiencing the death of cells? How is this so if or since Jesus has had the victory over death? How can you say this, McCraney? How can you do it? For many who see the victory of Christ over the material world, who typically believe in a material resurrection, by the way, just to let you know, they await a kingdom where there is no physical death anymore. They await a kingdom where there are no toothaches, where there is no cancer. It, there is no death at all. There are no tears to be wiped away in this realm as people walk around on this earth and shop at Kmart. There's no more tears, okay? Um, again, in the physical material world, they've taken the kingdom that Jesus has established and said it's going to reign here materially. And we're waiting for him to come to institute that kingdom because he, hasn't, he, has, show, he has obviously not shown he's had victory because we're all still dying and suffering. Okay? And they're waiting for 4,500 years for a kingdom here on material earth where Jesus will sit on an actual throne in the old brick and mortar Jerusalem and reign over the earth. That's the, that's the rhetoric. I get this. I used to teach it staunchly as a former Calvary Chapel trained person. But when you take all the facets of Scripture into account, it's impossible it's impossible to, to stand on that any longer. Those facets include six points that I'm going to quickly address here on the board. Dave, I'm going to it really quickly. Okay? And I'll just present them to you and you can see what you think. So the first one is Revelation depicts the kingdom of heaven as being in heaven in a new Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem is gone. That's revelation. That's one of the first things I say. The, the, the kingdom is established there, and it can be here in the hearts of people, but that kingdom is not like the old Jerusalem, which was destroyed. It's a new Jerusalem, which Luke says is in heaven. That's the first thing. Second thing, the scripture is clear that the promise to return was to them. If that's the case, then the end of all former things have occurred. So I'm going to emphasize the end was to them. And I can give you dozens of passages that validates that their words were to them in that age. That's the second point. Third point, Hebrews says the only thing that will remain once this kingdom has been established is cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. All things that can be shaken would be removed. Everything that can be shaken will be removed. To me, that means brick and mortar religion. To me, it means anything that is material. That stuff can be shaken. That's why you have popes doing what they're doing and bishops molesting children and fraud in the finances and legalisms and 
infighting, all of that shakable stuff. God says in the kingdom that he'll establish, which is established in Revelation on high, the new Jerusalem where he will reign from, there will be nothing that can be shaken to me that's spiritual. Fourth, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now you can take that, he meant it spiritually or he meant it physically. I think he meant it's not here. That's what he said. It's not of this world. It's of a different world. To be part of it is to be part of it spiritually. Jesus also said that the kingdom of God is within you. So there's my fifth one. This is from Jesus. Within you. And by the way, Jeremiah has God say, in that day I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. That is where it will dwell, in you, in believers. You want to be part of this kingdom here? It's in you. You're either part of it or you're not. If you're not, you're part of this material world still. You want to be part of the kingdom of God? It's in your heart through regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and you are part of a kingdom that's thriving on high. Finally, Jesus said that those who believe in him would never die. Do you remember when he said that? He says, if you believe on me, you will never die. People believe on him and have died all over the place. Peter, Paul, James, John, they all died. We are going to die. When he said, if you believe in me, you will never die, we know he had to have been talking about die in a, in a spiritual sense. Everyone dies in a material sense. There was never going to come a point in time where material death was not going to exist. That's a fallacy. When he said, if you believe me, you'll never die, it could not have been speaking to this realm because everyone who believes on him continues to die. Do you get that? So those are some of the points that I believe in the center of that. It should read spiritual kingdom, not material. So if you're, we're able to clear the deck of a material kingdom mindset and embrace the spiritual one that scriptures, and those are just some of the highlights, are constantly presenting us, then we're able to see him as having been victorious and reigning over the kingdom that is of, not of this world, the kingdom that he is over. And in that, he reigns supreme. That his, the members of his kingdom are true. That they ha he has their ears. There, there is no worry about shifting or shaking or this or that. There, his church, the, the gates of hell have not come against it. That kingdom cannot be touched, you see, okay? So in this sense, we know that death in the material world, which is not where he reigns, will always continue. It's been continuing for 2,000 years after the apostles promised those people that he was coming. And, but through his victory, guess what? But through his victory, physical death has been beaten. How? Through the resurrection that everyone gets. Before his victory, you died, you laid, you went to Sheol, you went to the covered place, you went to hell. And there was no resurrection, right? 
So death had its grip before he came. Now death has lost its victory, lost its sting, because Christ has had the victory and everyone is resurrected. That is how death has been beaten. Okay? So we know that resurrection is not material, according to everything we've just learned, that it's spiritual, with spiritual bodies equipped for living in that heavenly kingdom. Those who propose material bodies coming out of a material grave simultaneously support a future material kingdom. The Mormons, the Catholics, Orthodox, Calvary chapels, they all teach you will come out of the grave materially because Jesus did, and we've covered that. And therefore, you will then live in this material kingdom here on earth, and there'll be no more tears, and there'll be no more war, and Jesus will reign from Jerusalem on his throne. It is totally thrown things that are scriptural out of the way in order to keep the myth alive. One goes with the other is what I'm saying. So seeing that the resurrection is a spiritual body fitted for that economy and that heavenly place, we have more evidence and support for the stance that everything in, in the faith is based on what is above, not in, and in our heart. What is above in, and in our heart, not what is below and that we see and that we attend and that we support. That is not his kingdom. Hence the stance against brick and I mean, I know we're meeting in a building, but I'm talking about the extremes and the tithes and the dress codes and the legalisms, legalisms where there's a law, there's sin. All of that stuff plays into a religion that is Jesus came and, and he overcame for us. You want to be free? Look at what he did relative to these things. And so we're going to continue to have toothaches. And our children who are born yesterday and our great-grandchildren who will be born 40 years from now, they're going to experience pain. They're going to die. That is what is established in the material world. Tears will flow in this realm. That's how you answer that. But he has had the consummate victory over all forms of death, physical through the resurrection, and spiritual death. He's had the victory over spiritual death Afterward, which was talked about in Scripture, by having overcome the law, which produces sin, which produces death. You see, physically he overcame it. We know how he did that. But do you realize that he also overcame the spiritual death that Scripture talks about? He overcame that on our behalf. So when Isaiah and Jesus and Paul and Peter spoke of a kingdom of total victory, of glory, of power, it is all in the destination of heaven. When, and when they talk about corruption, disease, pain, tears, and the like, it's connected to this world. So we're talking about material versus spiritual. How glorious a time when the inhabitant of this world will say, I no longer am sick. I no longer am corrupt. I no longer am sinful in my flesh, as it were. Uh, I am not going to die. I have this place where I'm going to go on forever and ever and ever. That occurs at death and at resurrection and at stepping into the kingdom. 
his victorious kingdom that exists in us now in part and in full above. We're part of that kingdom. We're just not there yet. We're still inhabiting these things. So we're part of that kingdom spiritually. We're just not there yet. Um, Paul writes this verse. O death, where is thy sting? Paul knew he was going to die physically if he, if he died before Jesus came. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Right? He had people dying around him all the time, but yet he asked that question. This is another passage from the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Uh, Hosea 13, 14, in all probability, it says, O death, where is thy revenge? Your judicial process, O grave, where is thy sting? And uh, the early church leaders and other versions interchanged victory to death in this passage and sting to the grave. So these get rearranged in different translations. I'm not going to go into it, but they've been rearranged, uh, point blank. And we could cover that another time, uh, maybe not in in milk. Uh, But in other words, in the words of Paul, both death and Hades are again personified. Death is represented as having a sting. And uh, the grave is uh, attributed with having victory, V for victory, right? So the next verse, Paul repeats the first line of this verse saying, the sting of death is sin. Stay with me, we're almost done, and this is the most important part of today in my estimation. We've talked about resurrection. We've talked about how that looks. We've talked about what it looks like if those people were alive when Jesus came, how they're going to be changed. He's addressed that, but now he's talking about the consummate victory of death. And he says, the sting of death is sin. All right? O death, where is thy sting? And then he adds, the sting of death is sin. From these statements, I think we can say and be correct, where sin has been taken care of and removed, there can be no sin in death. I mean, no sting, no sting in death. If and where sin has been removed, there can be no sting in death. All right? Why, and this is why Paul is rhetorically asked, oh, death, he asks, where is your sting? Where is your sting? There's no sting in the death when sin has been removed. You go to the funeral of your cousin who was a drug user who died on a motorcycle, and everyone who's at the funeral gives him the benefit of the doubt. Well, God is going to be merciful to him. He's okay. You know why we do that? Because God has written in our hearts that we know that he is just and we know that he is merciful and we know that our cousin who didn't do much with his life but used drugs and died on the motorcycle at 27, the removal of sin occurred in his life by Christ Jesus. There's no sting. We're going to miss him. We're sorry he died. It's unfortunate he went that way, but there's no sting in his death. He is not in hell burning forever. No, there's no way. Not if Christ has had the victory. Okay, see, first came sin, then came death. And that was the order of the garden. Uh, Adam overcame the punishment and sting of death spiritually, by the way, the second Adam. Um, And so, in other words, for death to have no sting, the reason or purpose for death had to have been overcome. 
And that reason is sin. It had to have been overcome, paid for in full, past, present, future, by Christ. Not in part. Not, as the Calvinists say, for those who will believe on him. The, the, the payment for sin, which, it, which brings the sting of death, has been made by Christ, Lord and Savior. We're lucky to know that he did it. We're blessed to have a relationship with him who did it for us. But he did it for all. So, in other words, for death to have no sting, the reason or purpose for death had to be overcome, and the reason is sin, paid for fully. But then Paul adds as a means to really teach us something, and the strength of sin, ready, is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Had Adam not been given a law or a tree, so to speak, no tree, no commandment not to eat of it, Adam could not have been guilty of sin. And therefore, death would not have entered into the world. Simple as that. But he was given a law or a command by God. Here's a tree, Adam. You can love me. You can follow me. You can do whatever you want with this garden. Don't eat it out, sucker. That's your only command. Don't do it. In the face of it and in the breaking of it, Adam was made a sinner. And therefore, death was introduced to him and the rest of the world. There is a law. There is a sin. There is death. That's the order. It's plain as day in Scripture. Of course, God knew all this. Uh, but the point remains, and it's a good one, God purposely gave Adam a law and, or a command. And in doing so, he accomplished several things. He allowed Adam and Eve to freely rebel or to freely love him. You can choose. And he gives that to all of us too. You can freely choose. And he allowed for their failure to introduce misery and woe and death, the natural outcome of rebellion against loving God and his ways. You can still do that. He showed his mercy and love by, and solution to what Adam did as a representative of all of us by providing his son who overcame the law and overcame the grave and overcame sin and overcame death on behalf of the world. So what Adam brought in and we all still suffer with in this kingdom of material Christ came in and had victory over, and the benefits of it are spiritual. Adam's stuff continues to reign, but Jesus has had the victory. He eliminated sins committed under the law and sins that could be committed by eliminating the law or rules. So all can experience liberty from the sting of death in the grave. That's great news. That is great news. Um, no longer are we under the sting of death and the captivity of the grave, which they were under the law with the accuser, Satan, who accused by the law, the brethren. Look at the math. The sting of death is sin. The strength of the sin is the law. In order for death to lose its sin, folks, the law had to be overcome. 
It had to be overcome. It's as simple as that. There are people trying to overcome the law themselves. They are doing it through legalistic ways. They think that through their righteousness, they are overcoming the law. But the scripture is clear. If you fail in one point of the law, you are guilty of breaking all of it. So the individual cannot beat the law. Don't beat the law. You're under sin. If you're under sin, you're going to die in every way possible. So Christ comes and he does what we could not do for us. Beat the law, beat sin, beat death on our behalf. Simple as that. Because where there's a law, there's a capacity that's right for sin. And Jesus did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. Note that. He admits that he came to complete them, to fulfill them in his own obedience on our behalf, with his own life. By and through obedience to every point and portion, perfectly fulfilling the law's demands, if he hadn't, sin would still reign because the law would not have been fulfilled. And so would death and the grave. They do not, not in his kingdom. That's why Paul says, and I'm going to read you these scriptures. Just listen. If you have ears to hear, listen. Paul says in Romans 7 8, For without the law, sin was dead. Without the law, sin was dead. Romans 8 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Free. There is no law. You're free from the law of sin and death. Death in Christ. Death in, this, uh, death in the spiritual sense. 1 John 3, 4, listen. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. You want to go before God and be sinful in his eyes? Go before him with a bunch of laws you think you've kept. Do that. And I can guarantee you you're going to have a rude awakening. Because you couldn't keep it perfectly. That's why Jesus came. There's no need to go back and try to keep any of it perfectly. It doesn't exist. That's how sin doesn't exist. Thank God when we read in John's gospel, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Colossians 2.13. You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's quickened together with him, have for, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. Ordinances, blotting them out. There's no ordinances that can make you a sinner anymore. Which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That law was taken, it was nailed, boom, 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 to his cross. And he was able, it was able to be nailed to that because he fulfilled it in himself. We cannot do that. Don't even try. Impossible. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. That's it, past tense of what Jesus did with that law. Okay, that hangs over us and makes us all sinners. So, if someone comes to me and says, I'm sinful, you say, in what way? 
Well, it says don't do this. That's, that's gone. What are you talking about? Well, it says don't do that. Well, that's gone. What are you talking about? Well, you know, I haven't been loving. Oh, well, we'll talk about that. And I'll get to that last point in a second before we wrap it up. Thank God Paul added, wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law. Do you hear me? Dead to the law. By the body of Christ. Romans 7, 16. And now we are delivered from the law. You get it. You become free from sin. That being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of life. And finally, Galatians 2.19, Paul says, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. This last passage brings us to a question that I have to address. If the law is what makes us sinners and results in death, and it does, that's clear, what are we to say about the commandments that we have been given as Christians? What are they? To believe in love. And this is his commandment. John 3.23, this is his commandment, that you believe on his son whom he has sent and love as he commanded us to do. Those are the two commandments. Commandments are laws. So what do we do with that? They are a law. We are Christians. We're under that law. Are we therefore sinful? It's a difficult question because Jesus did nail the law to the cross through the ordinances thereof, and he did overcome sin and death, which is the product of the law. So what do we to say to that? I'm going to go to James 4:17. There's a twist and it's subtle. He says, therefore to him that knows to do good, but does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay? Knows to do good. Do you notice the verbiage and the shift? It's not to him who does evil anymore, because it's the law who tells us what we're doing is evil. That's not what James says. It's to him who knows to do good. How would he know to do good? By what God has written on his heart. To him who knows to do good, personally, individually, doesn't say them, he says him, meaning the individual, to the individual who God has written on his heart, who knows to do good and does not do it to him, to that individual, to that subjective experience we have with God directly, to him it is sin, right? And, and so I mention this because the law has made us all sinners. Je- Jesus took care of that, the universal law of sin and death. But with each of us now bearing the spirit of God, I suggest we're now individually accountable for our lives and our actions to the laws that God writes on our heart and the good we choose to do or not do. If you know you should do it, but you don't, that is the sin. It's not the law written that says don't do evil. It's to how to know to do good. There's a subtle shift there with what James says. And that the sin we are responsible for is the failure to act the way we know we should. And that, that, that breaks us every day almost, doesn't it? By the Holy Spirit in us. And we don't need religion to tell us that. We know. I should just shut my mouth. I know to do And to him it is sin. To him it is sin. Between them and God. And you go to God and say, God, forgive me. And he's merciful and graceful. And he says, keep loving. 
keep growing. That, that's how it works now, you see. This is the way I present it for whatever it's worth. But it's my response to what about the law of the Christian life of faith and love. So after saying that the strength of the law is sin, don't forget that Paul adds, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the solution. It's all through him. Jesus is it. There it is, period. Remember last week how we talked about Adam and then Jesus as the second Adam? Remember how we inherited our corruptible bodies from Adam, first Adam, but in Christ, the incorruptible body we will receive at the resurrection? Paul says the following about himself after he had been an apostle for quite a while. Listen to what Paul says here. I delight in the law of God according to the inward person that I am. But I see another law in my physical members. And they're warring against the law of my mind. And they're bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This corruptible body we still inhabit. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So we've been talking about that. How are we liberated from the body of death that we walk around in here? And here we have Paul giving thanks to God again for the gift of the finished work of his son. Listen to what he finalizes this with. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ready? Now the summation. Remember this in your lives, folks. So then with the mind, that's the inner man, I myself serve the law of God, which is to love and to believe on his son. With my mind, I do it. But with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. Where's that flesh going to go when we take our last breath? In the grave, corruptible, molding, turns to dust, eaten by animals. Where are we going to go? The mind that will come that was given by the Spirit of God. We will return. We will go to God, right? So Paul admits as an apostle, with my mind, I serve the law of God, which is to love and have faith in his son. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin, which I'm supposed to be dead to, but it keeps cropping up in my own flesh. The flesh, the bone, the blood, the body, we all get from Adam, all of it. And it will fail, it will always sin, it forever does. Even in the fact that if you think you aren't sinning, you're sinning in the fact that you think you haven't sinned. It's endless. This flesh is pathetic because of our carnal natures. It needs to die. That's why we are die daily with Christ, buried with him, rise to new life. That's that whole resurrection thing in the living life of an individual right? So while our flesh will always serve the law of sin and death, Paul says that it is with his mind that he will serve the law of God, knowing from all that he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, that he was immediately given spiritual life by Christ upon belief when God regenerated Paul, and that he progressively through the Spirit would grow in his mind, will, emotion, his soul, and that he ultimately would receive a body that would be fitted for heaven, not a flesh and blood and corruption, but completely different. 
And Jesus will have reigned completely over everything in and through that process of Paul and all those who are his. So as a result of this, Paul leaves off this chapter with a recommendation to the believers at Corinth saying something really, really important. Last chapter of the verse. Something that ties into what he has said about the resurrection and, and the, of the Christian life and those who choose it. He says, therefore, therefore, all I've said, my beloved brethren, be ye. Now comes a command or, or a suggestion in the least. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as you know, you know now after I've taught you about the resurrection, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I would tell you strongly that that therefore, as a result of all we've said about this resurrection, and God is going to give it to us, that you be steadfast and movable, abounding in the words of the Lord, you know your labors that you do are not in vain. What does that mean? It means that God is going to bestow on you in the future through your resurrected body, something commensurate with the lives you lived. Therefore, be steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord, as you know now that I've taught you about the resurrection, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There is a reason and there is a recompense. There is a reward, if you will, that will come with various glories as you are this way in the work of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> There's a purpose. There is a reward, if you will, by God and His will. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it means. I don't know the qualifications of it. I don't know why He would give one person a body of great glory and another person a body of less. One of the moon and the other of the stars. I don't, we don't know. I would assume it has to do with your faith. I would assume it has to do with your love. I would pretty much stand on it doesn't have anything to do with your sin nature. That has been inherited by Adam and has been overcome by Christ and paid for. So I can't believe it has to do with that. It has to do with the presence of a faith and the presence of a love because those are the Christian commandments. Sin is gone punishment for sin is gone. But rewards of different types and glories await, according to what he said. Okay, Q&A, or if any, or comments. Boy, it's warm in here. So can you hear me? Is this uh, pretty good? <coughs> Excuse me. No, I do apologize. I'm doing the best I can to... Uh, Pay attention, my ADD gets in the way. But I was going to say with the resurrection, if, since Christ allegedly according to his return in about 70 AD, uh, if we're yet to be resurrected, um, whether, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, I do apologize and I do the best I can to pay attention. If we're cremated or if we're uh, dead, you know, if we're dismembered or whatever, how is this uh, resur res resurrection happen? Is it more of a... I think you said it was more of a physical resurrection or is it more spiritual because which makes you wonder if we're going to resurrect where does our spirit go because the Methodist told me when I was Methodist well the spirit goes to be with the Lord and yet your body is still at rest until it is ready to yeah. somehow materialize somehow yeah. is that really an unknown it's like we know we'll be material but it's unknown no we won't be material at all in my estimation and understanding it's a spiritual resurrection 
and it happens once you die immediately. There's no spirit going to God, waiting for him, then comes this, then you go and are judged, and then you get a body according out of the grave. That, that is all this, this, this thing that's been created because of Christ and his victory and his everything else. When you die, your body that you inherited from Adam will turn to dust. You will go and you will, in the twinkling of an eye, be granted a body by God for eternity. That's what it seems to be, Eric. Okay, so what does it mean to be resurrected? Just your spirit to, is resurrection like the moment you die, you give up the ghost, you go to, is that the resurrection or is there another resurrection yet no. we're still? No, that, in my estimation, that's the resurrection now. If we were at Corinth right now, it would be a completely different conversation we would be having. Uh -huh. But we're not. And so because of everything that we can read about, it seems to me now we have entered into the period of continual resurrection where you die, you're raptured up, you are, uh, you are judged by God, you are given your body in the twinkling of an eye, and it's done. Yes. That's okay. how I would see it. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks for paying attention to this because it's not easy. Yeah. Anybody else? All right. I'm sorry, I don't really have anything to add. I just want to thank you so much for all your research and study and... Um, you know, it really helps to clear these matters up for us, I think. And um, I feel really bad for people who don't get it and how they can read the scriptures. I probably would miss it if you hadn't clarified it, but how they can read the, the New Testament and not understand that these things have been taken care of already for us. Yeah. And uh, so thank well, you. We very were much. one of them at one time, right? I know. That's why I say it. it's just, it's amazing that, you know. He has revealed it to us. It's so clear when it's yeah. pointed out. Thank yeah. you so much. Praise God. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for letting me do it. Up here at the front, Brother Vanna. Van. We'll call you Van. Well, I'm the New Ager, so I'll give you a, a little different take. Uh, from what I was taught in the group I was in, that people were resurrected and took their ascension, which resurrection ascension is the same, uh, at the time when Jesus returned in that early time. But they also believe that as souls to totally learn to love, they can take their ascension. So it's an ongoing thing through the centuries, and then there will be the final one oh. at the end. Oh, interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that. Uh, we're going to do a quick TVAR thing. Uh, I'm going to get out of here, pray with you, and get out of here so that you won't in, insult me. Uh, uh, but just understand, if you'll just participate, if you have a TVAR and you're here, just give your thoughts on it. Just understand a couple things. Well, Seth, you'll explain the things. Okay, uh, let's pray. Uh, is there a list, Van? No, no list. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray that we will have the fruit of the spirit, patience, love, long-suffering, kindness, temperance, all those things uh, for which there is no law. We just pray that we'll have that as we engage with people who see things as we used to. And we pray that we will be humble and broken before <clears throat> you as we communicate rather than argumentative and to help this flesh to never rise up, but to lay in the ground, be dead to the law, and to live by the spirit of in its fruit uh, on these topics that are they're so debated and so difficult. Just help those who are struggling, Lord, in so many ways in this world and uh, bless them and make your presence known. Help those who are 
a part of our group who aren't here for various reasons, bless them and help people who have moved on to other churches. There's a couple of them who have gone on for different reasons, and we just bless them and pray they'll grow in the Spirit and just help the state of Utah and other places where the Word is taught to catch on fire with your Spirit and the fruit of it. So we pray for this now uh, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.